NBC's hit comedy, The Good Place, was one of my main sources of inspiration over the past four years. The zany and silly humor combined with moral reflection on living a truly good life encouraged good cheer in our household on the difficult weeks. And Eleanor, Chidi, Jason, and Tahani's story became the cherry on top of our best ones. Whether it was wondering what we owe each other or consoling a 6,000-foot-tall fire squid, the good place touched our hearts. This is Logosish. Today we reminisce about the good place and explore its ethics with nearly Dr. Brian Elrod. Hi everyone, uh, this is Garrett Roca. Welcome back to Logosish. We are here to record. We are here to talk about uh, just another... Uh... <laughs> you can edit this out, right guys? I'm Sarah Relliford, this is Logosish. <laughs> <laughs> this is Logosish. Uh, I'm here back with my friends, uh, Sarah Relliford, John Hoyne, and Brian Betcher, and we're gonna just talk about um, the good place uh, in our lives. We have our guest, uh, Brian Matthew Elrod, uh, nearly uh, nearly doctor from Emory University here with us to chat about that this morning. So just to check in with you guys, how are you guys doing this week? I'm doing pretty good, especially after that stellar introduction, Garrett. I'm very excited that you have included me today in the list of people. It is harder than it seems though, right? You know, it is. And I really appreciate our production team because uh, the editors are going to have such a great time with this episode. Our production team is one person. It is John Hoyne, who does all the work for all of us. And uh, I will totally not be editing that first 30 <laughs> seconds out. Wonderful. Uh, much like my sermons, uh, it really starts off with a crash before it takes off so yeah so what are you guys doing traveling going out <laughs> brian well, so i've spent my week figuring out how much money my church doesn't have in order to pay bills that uh just keep coming Oof. so uh that's been fun great gotcha. that that sounds like uh, a lot of small churches nowadays the um i am getting ready to go on vacation and practice this trendy new thing that i heard in seminary called sabbath uh, so Laurel and I are going to spend some time away because we haven't done that in a while. So we're excited about that. Where are you guys going for this um, uh, Sabbath? Sabbath, was it? Sabbath. Sabbath. We are going to visit her dad in Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina. So we're cool. going to... We'll see you there. Yeah, yeah. See you guys there. We're going to venture out of our COVID bubble. And we've been really good. We haven't essentially left the house for like two and a half months. We're going to be a little hurt if you don't stop at our place on the way. Oh, boy. All right. Well, we're prepared. We'll, to have, to figure, we'll have to figure that out. I don't know if we can drive the plane to your house. So <laughs> we forgot there were other methods of travel besides cars. Yeah. Um, let's dive right into it, because I am super eager about this topic today. We are talking about the NBC, please tell me it's actually on NBC, show, is it? Oh, no. <laughs> so before we get started, uh, nearly Dr. Brian Elrod, who are you? Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Brian Elrod. I am a PhD candidate 
uh, at Emory University's Graduate Division of Religion. I work in the Ethics and Society course of study, and I owe a shout out to a couple of my colleagues who helped get us all really interested in The Good Place. The nearly Dr. Emmy Corey, Dr. Elinott Marshall, uh, the Reverend Dr. Michael Yandel, and the very nearly Dr. Nicole Simmons have all been fo- well, followed this show closely, and we all enjoyed shooting the breeze about it. Uh, and that resulted in future Dr. Simmons and Dr. Yandel and I all hosting an academic panel on, um, on The Good Place, because there's nothing that improves a joke, like taking it really seriously and then just picking it apart. We, we find that people really enjoy that. That's what, that's what they're after. They want to be told why something's funny. You got to um, over-explain. You always have to right. over-explain. So, uh, so, yeah, a lot of the thoughts that I've got here are thoughts that I developed in a conference paper for the uh, Southeastern Commission on the Study of Religion. And we had a great time doing that. Um, so, you know, keep a lookout for Michael Yandel's works. And, uh, and Nicole has a weekly kind of podcast conversation that she does with some of our other colleagues from Emory called Black Forwards that takes on different social issues and gathers a number of black intellectuals from Emory around their stuff. So that's, that's some shameless plugging. I didn't tell you all that I was going to do, but, but I, I owe them for helping me uh, have a chance to write this paper. Anyway, I normally write on political theology, and my dissertation sort of centers on the political afterlife of the dead and involves lots of writing about um, dead bodies uh, in the American borderlands. So that's heavy stuff. Uh, And Michael and Nicole likewise work on really um, heavy subject matter. So we found writing these papers as a chance to kind of uh, enjoy something light and breezy for a change. How did I get to this thing. Um, I've made a, ba- a lot of bad decisions. I majored in religion and philosophy, and then I got a master's in theology and then another one. And, and it's, it's too late for me now. So that's, that's how I've, I've come to be here. But I really enjoy talking about ideas and, and engaging student questions and, and learning from my students. So, uh, so hopefully I can continue to make bad decisions and, and maybe encourage uh, my students to do so as well. Yeah, much like uh, Pringles, once you get that first degree in religion, you just can't stop. That's right, yeah. There's such lucrative degrees too, you know, just climbing the social ladder. Yeah, I feel your pain. I'm going to be aiming for number three or four or five soon. Who knows? I can't count anymore. That's also probably a symptom of all my religion degrees. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I'm getting that doctorate of ministry for funsies. (laughs) And uh uh, Michael Yandel was actually one of the TAs in one of my classes last year. So I did nice. not realize y'all were acquainted. So that's mm-hmm. really cool. Yes. Yeah, so invite, invite Michael on and he can, he can tell you what he thinks about the good place or share one of his many other insights with you. But. So Sarah, I rudely interrupted her a minute ago, but you know, you were saying that we're going to talk about the good place today, NBC's hit sitcom. And uh, we should probably start by explaining why we're talking about The Good Place. Like, what's the premise? You know, what draws us to it as people who study or are otherwise professionally engaged with religion in America? Yeah, I think when we bring pop culture into anything or pop culture tries to engage in something that's higher or not necessarily higher brow, but not at the forefront of your mind as the subject of ethics. It's always, it always proves to 
stoke a lot of conversation like what is ethics why should we even care about that and if you watch the first couple episodes they ask those very same questions so brian why don't you just explain maybe your first impressions on the show yeah or let's, and, let's do a basic premise real quick just in case yeah so take it away brian all right so yeah so the good place is a a sitcom about four people who die and as far as they are told have arrived in in heaven in the good place and uh over the course of the show it becomes clear that none of the four of them belong there and their sense of being out of place in the good place leads to all sorts of of anxiety and alienation and hilarity ensues so we discover at the end of the first season that they're not they're not in heaven really they're in hell they're in the bad place and so in the subsequent seasons, uh, the narrative of the show turns on their effort to kind of get on the universe's good side, to find their way into the good place. And as they do that, they discover that not only are they in the bad place, but every human being uh, that has lived for the past hundred, several hundred years has ended up in the bad place. Um, and so by the end of the show, it takes this form of a kind of courtroom drama where the protagonists are trying to make a case that they deserve their place in the good place, that human beings deserve a, a more fair shot. There's, there's lots more uh, sort of synopsis stuff I do in, in the paper, but, um, but why should we be interested in a show about this? So one, I think, I think pop culture is a lot of fun. We gave this panel in a unit that's normally taking on high culture and doing really smart stuff. And we rolled in, we're like, let's talk about TV. But there was excitement around it. And the reason there was, I think, is that, you know, popular TV works because it has an audience or it fails because there's no audience that's going to be there. There's my sophisticated take on how ratings work. Who knows? Should work on TV. Yeah, I should. That's, that's the next stop. So, you know, clearly this show struck a chord, not just with nerds uh, who are studying religion and philosophy professionally, but with a wide base of viewers. And I think it struck a chord because it did invite folks to think about, think about the good life, to think about justice. Um, I think one of the deep commitments in the show is that this universe, whatever it may be, whatever hiccups it might experience, at bottom is structured according to consistent principles of distributive and retributive justice. So the good in the end finally receive what is their due and the wicked are punished. The good uh, humanitarian who dies anonymously and impoverished goes to heaven and gets their heavenly clown house and Froyo shop. The uh, real estate tycoon who made their fortune um, cheating their uh, employees and, and failing to pay their contracts finally gets uh, their rightful punishment. And when we're living in a world where justice seems so often to fail on a, you know, a planet that's warming where political strife seems intractable, escaping for 30 minutes at a time into, into a world like this gives us a chance to try and do some moral reasoning and to get a little respite from, from that, that sort of reasoning's kind of constant failure or refusal. And so I think academics who spend their time thinking about this stuff or, or people on the fringes of academia like myself, have uh, have good reason to get in on the conversation as well. What else? What did I what did I miss? Yeah, that was that was really good. Um, I know that I haven't seen the entire series yet, but I was really intrigued 
uh, especially as the first season progressed, that sense of what a lot of people think of as imposter syndrome, right? Where you feel like you've been given this this position or gift or whatever, and you didn't really earn it, and you're trying the best you can to live into those expectations. Um, it's kind of struck me as, again, an over-exaggerated version of that and why this why the good place really exists i really fell in love with the characters too um especially the really flawed ones who are outwardly flawed because it it made it for me uh, really enjoyable to to see them uh grow through the course of of the entire show so that's what my first impression of the show was i thought it was really great so john what do you think about your first impression yeah, I, I loved it for a lot of the same reasons. And um, my sort of area of interest and research has has for a long time been in the stories that we talk about when we tell stories about death and afterlife and things like that. And so even though The Good Place is intended and the writers have said that it's intended to be more about ethics and ethical reflection, I think The Good Place invites us sort of once again to also reflect about both the stories that we tell about death and afterlife and also about the nature of the stories that we tell about death and afterlife and what they say about us and what we assume um, about, you know, the nature of reality and whether or not reality is ultimately structured in a way that can be just or good. So, you know, Brian, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the actual conclusions that you come to in your panel and uh, in the paper that accompanies it. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a whole paper I didn't give about the good places um, limits and thinking about the afterlife and, and thinking death that I think are, are limits we all have. Um, even to spoil the end of the show, Brian, even when they get to the good place, it's still the bad place. And, and the writers try to resolve that problem. Uh, Kierkegaardian that I am, I, I feel like uh, boredom remains this looming threat in the picture of heaven. And the only solution is, is a kind of self-annihilation. Uh, and it raises questions about what sort of afterlife do we think about if all goods are finite and life exists in sort of consuming those goods. And when, I'm, when I've consumed everything there is to consume and I'm still hungry, am I just relegated back to boredom? And do I need to die? Can you break that down a little bit more? Yeah. Sorry. So, so right, the characters in the end, and I did not write about this in my paper. So where we are just shooting from the hip here. But here's, here's my take on the end of the show, vis-a-vis -vis the afterlife. So the characters get to heaven finally, or the good place. And, and everyone there is kind of a, a brain-dead zombie, like mindlessly attending parties and, and drinking food. And they're bored with all of it. Uh, and they meet Hypatia of Alexandria, who's, you know, was a brilliant philosopher, mathematician, natural scientist, and she's completely brain dead. This, so this sort of eternity of consuming, you know, finite goods like parties and, uh, and sodas and snacks, the things you get sick of actually turns eternity into a nightmare where you just sort of go to rot cognitively, if not physically. And so eternity becomes a curse. And so after the characters have figured out how to get into the good place. The last episode or two 
are about figuring out how on earth to get out of the good place. Now, the narrative spins it as a story about these characters becoming sated. They've finally had enough. And when that happens, they, they sort of pass out of existence. Though the show isn't quite able to think that either. It has to imagine them turning into some kind of, I don't know, good vibes and pixie dust that, that then reanimates the universe. Uh, the last two minutes of the show are beyond me. Anyway, the need to get out of the good place is striking. And why on earth do these people need to get out? It seems it's because any given good they encounter, whether it's, uh, whether it's their lover, you know, in the case of uh, Chidi and um, Eleanor's relationship, whether it's jalapeno poppers for uh, someone like uh, Jason Mendoza, those goods get old and you get sick of them and then you need to die. And so one way of, one way of picturing this is as the satiation of desire and the, the sort of annihilation of the self. I, I don't study um, Eastern religions, but you can imagine some references to, to kind of the process of, of um, nirvana and, and the blowing out of desire and of the self uh, that you see in, in uh, Buddhism. And the show makes references like this. Uh, there are all kinds of problems with that too. But the way that they pitch this resolution is through a narrative problem of boredom. People are bored and eternity is a curse. So what is meant to look like triumph, you finally had enough, looks more to me like, like defeat. Boredom wins in the end and you must be rid of yourself or else you're just gonna be bored forever and it would be better to be dead. So what I think that's, I mean, the, again, the great things about this show is that the things about it that I find aggravating are things that make for great thought and that's what makes the show you know, a success even where it, it's limited. So what's striking then about this limitation is that it seems to say to us, hey, we're really bad at thinking about the good place. We're really bad at imagining heaven. We're really good at imagining the bad place and creating it here and in our fiction. And that's, you know, that's striking, I think. That's, that's worth thinking uh, more about. But that's, that's, uh, that's what I think about about the difficulty of imagining the afterlife and how the good place helps us to, uh, to reckon with that difficulty. If we imagine the good life as this life of consumption and the goods that we consume are finite, we're gonna get bored. So, so one of Kierkegaard's pseudonyms in, in the first volume of Either Or writes, uh, you've heard it said that, that God sates the, uh, the eyes before the stomach. And yet my, my, my stomach is full and still I hunger. I'm sure I butchered that, that quotation. I should have grabbed the book off my shelf. We can try it again with the right quotation if we want. But the point is this, that it's, impos it's, it's, it's possible to have every one of your needs met, to have all the kind of conditions of uh, going on, persisting right there in front of you. You can have food, you can have shelter, you can have clothes, you can have all of that and still hunger and long for something. And so, this pseudonym thinks then that all of life, all of its pursuits collapse back into boredom. And so the struggle of life is to stave boredom off. And it seems to me at the end of The Good Place, they're defeated in that struggle and they've just got to die. They've got to be rid of life. Eternity is a nightmare. But maybe the problem is, is imagining that the good life is a life of consumption uh, where all of our goods are finites that exist for us. Yeah, so in your paper, let's just back up a minute. In your paper... <laughs> um, <laughs> you kind of come to the conclusion that the solution that they come up with is, is a solution that relies on a kind of ethical philosophy 
that the judge has no reason to accept. You know, at the end of the show, they're trying to come up with a solution to this problem of the bad place, just sort of consuming everybody because life has gotten so complicated that even your best efforts and your best intentions produce negative outcomes. You know, you, you buy a flower, but that flower wasn't grown organically and, you know, it has impacted people who have had to pick the flowers in the agricultural flower field with pesticides and stuff like that. And, and there's just this fallout that results in your actions becoming uh, bad or problematic. And so they're like sitting there going, okay, well, we, we have to solve this because if your actions are based on a point system and the point system is always negative, then it's, it's really just, you know, the universe is set up to just torture people for eternity. And that's a problem because, you know, theoretically we value people. Can you talk a little bit about what you said in the paper related to that? <laughs> Can you talk about the things that you said you were going to come on here and talk about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, before the problem of escaping the good place comes up, there's, there's the problem of getting into the good place. And, and like I said earlier, this show it's a little bit Kant, it's a little bit Kafka, but it's never Nietzsche, it's never Camus, which is to say, it never gives up the belief that the universe has a deep moral structure. The universe is shaped according to justice, and it should be. And so when the protagonist of the show, or one of them, Chidi Adegonye, is a moral philosopher, one way of reading the show's drama is to read this as a story about uh, the, the ethicist's ability to kind of uncover the deep moral structure of the universe, even if sort of the supernatural entities responsible for keeping that structure in motion don't understand it. Another way of reading the show, though, is to, is, is to attend to its limits and, and ask, is this a show about the success of ethics, or is it actually a show about ethics limitations, the inability uh, of ethicists finally to provide uh, sort of compelling foundational arguments for the things, the goods they need most. And apparently I just, I, I just want to destroy my own job by, by arguing for the latter. So, so what happens? Let's look at Chidi. Chidi belongs in the bad place and the show gives us reasons to believe that. Chidi wiles his life away thinking about the good, but he never gets around to doing it. And so what that does is... You know, if, if we were told about some professor who spent all of his time babbling on about the good, maybe you guys can imagine such a figure sitting in this very virtual meeting room, just babbling on about the good, but never really getting around to it. We would be hard pressed to say this is a virtuous person. There's almost something perverted about it, right? Like you go on talking about the good and that talking becomes a distraction from doing the good. It constantly defers the task. So when we find out that Chidi's in the bad place, we think, oh, of course, yeah, he belongs there. He doesn't deserve you know, the, the good afterlife that the humanitarian does deserve. So this principle of distributive justice kind of makes good narrative sense, and we're with it. You know, maybe he doesn't deserve the punishment that we see him get. Maybe that's a bit much. But in general, we can buy the moral structure. We just want to tweak it. And that's where the narrative sort of goes. So... It looks like what they're gonna do is a kind of moral self-improvement for a few seasons, but then we discover that the whole system is a little bit broken, and here's how. Everyone's life is sort of morally valued based on an aggregate score that comes from the moral worth of every single action they've ever committed. 
So anything you might do is assigned points. And in a scene where uh, they go to the sort of cosmic accounting office, we find out that actions are judged uh, based on a, a couple of categories. One sort of deontological, it has to do with the form, the what of the action. So your intention, that matters. But it also matters what resources you use. Uh, now we're getting into more consequential um, appraisals of the act. And it also matters how it affects other people. And what we learn from Chidi, a guy who paved the way to hell with nothing but good intentions, is that really in this cosmic order, the sort of consequential appraisals are what really count. The form of the actor, or the form of the act, their, their intentions start to disappear when they're considered next to those criteria. And the actor themselves, Chidi, right? Brian, Garrett, Sarah, John, those people don't matter. It's just the acts. There really aren't actors with characters, with stories. There's only a kind of aggregate score. So what you discover then is that on the one side, you have sort of the system of justice that is consistent, it works, it makes sense. And on the other hand, you have the life that this very system alienates and the two stand in conflict. You can't both love Chidi and want him to make it to the good place and uphold this sort of moral uh, accounting system. You can't have both, or so it seems. So the judge who oversees this cosmic order decides that obviously the solution is to cancel Chidi. The earth is going to be canceled, we're gonna start over new, and then maybe things won't get so complicated that it's impossible to get a good score. Sort of the story of Noah, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure, you know, who knows what, what they would make Make that comparison, but yeah, right? Like, wow, things have gotten out of hand. Justice is more important than people. Let's knock those suckers out. And again, this makes sense in the show, right? Like, would you rather have a universe that's sort of, you know, nihilistic and chaotic at bottom with people? Or would you rather have um, a just cosmos, this cosmos they've gotten us to sort of inhabit with them, but they're, these people at least aren't here. And maybe another round of people comes through and they do better. So you get the idea, there's a, dis, there's a kind of an either or here, and you've got to pick one or the other. And the judge says, well, obviously we don't want a nihilistic universe. We want this just universe. But damn it, we care about these characters. I like Chidi and, and Eleanor and Jason and um, uh, Tahani. So the narrative pushes on and you've got now the moral philosopher whose task is to discover the real mortar, moral order and to uh, reconcile these seemingly opposing terms. And his solution is to say, aha, what if instead of, you know, stopping the score on everyone's life at the moment they die, what if we gave them sort of infinite time and infinite lives to keep working at it, to keep getting better? Um, you guys name this as one of the things you like about the show. So, okay, so we give them sort of a run clock. It keeps going. It never stops. And they get better and better. And eventually they earn their way into the good place. And that's the solution. So justice endures because the scoring system stays. Humans endure. And the way that's made possible is by giving them infinite time for infinite improvement. Uh, so the bad place is replaced by a, a kind of purgatory. <laughs> or, yeah, I was going to you know, say that uh, it reminds me very much of how purgatory worked. And that was the church's answer to quell the worries of those who were left behind, like, my uncle died. He, he wasn't the best person, uh, but we don't want him to suffer. Uh, what is there 
to give us hope that he'll like we'll eventually see him in the afterlife and essentially from what was it the catholic perspective they came up with purgatory and then of course as history progressed you know we have figures like martin luther um, and other figures sort of explain that away with expanding what grace means to to folks so yeah it sort of made me think about where we are as the church and how we explain this or try to engage with this giant system of uh what justice is and who deserves to go where um and ultimately uh, at least from a christian perspective that's sort of, that's definitely out of our hands as God is the one that that makes these judgments and the provisions to preserve us or or something else. So um, that was the one thing that sort of rattled around in the back of my mind is, at least from my perspective, how it would engage with the good place. Yeah. So here's the so here's the trick. So I care about my uncle, who's not that great, but come on, he wasn't a serial killer. He's not that bad. Well, I I care about my uncle. But does the judge in the show, does, does the sort of moral accounting system that The Good Place introduces have any reason to care? And the answer, it seems to me, on my viewing of the show, is no. There, there isn't. They don't, actors don't matter. Only aggregate scores. Everyone can finally be reduced to a number. So this idea that there should be moral improvement after death isn't a, it's not like we're sort of tweaking how much, you know, different acts matter. It's not like, well, now we're going to give people more points for donating uh, toiletries to a, to a toiletry drive for the local um, homeless shelter. Or we're going to give people more points for, for pushing legislation or engaging the courts uh, on issues of social justice. That's not what's happening here. Uh, we're not also not saying, okay, well, we're going to take fewer points off if, if buying that toiletry got you ensconced in a supply chain that's uh, undermining the climatic integrity of the planet and the life of everyone living in it. We're, we, we won't penalize you as much for that. The change is more radical. It's saying that the acts are no longer the central thing. We're gonna care about these people. We're gonna care about Chidi's. We're gonna care about Eleanor's, about Jason's, about Tahani's. And that I think is something radical. And that's also something that, that Chidi, the great moral philosopher in the show who saves the day never justifies. There is no justification for caring about people there's, there's a logical leap between, you know, this act-based vision of the show and the version of the afterlife uh, that, you know, cares about our uncle who, who doesn't suck, come on, uh, who belongs in a medium sort of place or, or maybe even a good one. And so that leap, uh, which, you know, we might talk about if we were using technical language as a ship from a story about distributive and retributive judge, uh, justice, a story about getting what, you're, what you deserve, good or ill, to a story about restorative justice, a justice that's about putting people in good relationships, that leap is not accounted for. And the good that motivates that leap is a good that I don't think um, ethicists, ethicists are finally able uh, to articulate without getting themselves lost in, in logical circles. Well, I mean, it, it's also just a matter of like your everyday like person thinks about that kind of moral structure and what does that mean for their lives? Um, what is the reason to try to be a good person? Um, is, is that the end in itself? Or is it uh, from a religious standpoint, is there 
a reason to contribute that, whether out of fear or out of, you know, aspiration or goal. And I think Christians in particular have had to wrestle with what is this moral structure that clearly is somewhat a part of our universe, or at least they claim it is. How, and then how are we judged for that? And are we just morally, completely morally deficient forever uh, or ethically deficient in our behavior? And we care about people. So what, what is our solution to that? And all of those are questions I think people ask what are thinking about or asking whether they really understand them or not. So uh, yeah, it's a good reason to watch The Good Place, to wrestle with those kinds of issues. At least the first five episodes, you know? Uh, yes, that's how many episodes I've seen thus far. <laughs> you haven't even gotten to the medium place, friend. That's right, yeah. yeah that's, I, I'm that's not sure that I would ever deserve that, so that's okay. <laughs> There's a great scene where the judge goes down to Earth and comes back and is just like, I can't believe how messed up it is down there. You know, you can be a bad person for eating a chicken sandwich. What's this about? So these reflections do, I think, have bearing, right? You know, like we all really, I think, want, or at the very least are raised to want to be, you know, fairly decent human beings. And, you know, our brains, you know, ask us and push us in the direction of, you know, trying to be at least, you know, good in the eyes of other people and, you know, ideally ourselves. So, you know, the decisions that we make, we care about them in some way. And then we tell ourselves stories to justify those decisions in, in different kinds of ways. Uh, I see this, uh, especially with uh, Laurel, who teaches at USF, and her students when she te teaches ethics or environmental ethics, is that her students really want to do something good, but they come to the point of wanting to do something good on behalf of the environment or others. And then there's this choice paralysis. There are so many different things and implications that it's very overwhelming. And that's something that is very present, especially for folks our age and especially younger, that they don't know where to start. And I see a lot of especially on social media, these videos, um, talking about one small step. Uh, you're not going to solve the entire world or entire problem, but it's reaffirming that you have this power or agency, as, as some would say, that may not have a huge impact, but it's, it's contributing to something. So you can do these things. And those small things do add up, not, not to fall into like the point system. You can make the world a better place. And I think that especially transferring into real life, um, that is a really good thing to keep in mind. Like your actions matter. Uh, you can make good decisions and improve things. And when you see a problem and if you engage with it, persist with it, you can make some change in some, some sort of way. Yeah, Garrett, there's a character on the show that um, I think he's accumulated the most good points or uh, points uh, at some, well, point. <laughs> and uh, they go to visit him and he like won't step on bugs and has to undo everything he views as a negative action with a positive action. And the 
anxiety that I felt watching that storyline was so palpable and so relatable about how we uh, engage with the the world. And I felt so bad for that for that gentleman. Yeah, so somebody that I can't remember. <laughs> his name is Doug Forsett. And so yes, what makes him great okay. is that one day he got really, really high on mushrooms. And then in his high, he he accurately described the afterlife and how it works. In effect, this guy by getting really, really high solved ethics, right? Like he he got it, he got it all on, on the table. But what we discover in that visit is that ethics for him didn't make living the good life easier. It actually basically turned him into a hermit. Like the man can't even leave his cabin uh, that's sitting in the middle of the woods, if I remember right. So ethics for him weren't life-giving, they were crippling. Uh, and so Doug Forsett, this character, uh, like Chidi, who's just shot through with anxiety, becomes a symptom of this moral world that just doesn't work. This moral world that the Chidi, great moral philosopher that he is, has to solve by by marking this transition from kind of distributive retributive uh, justice. Everyone gets their due to retributive justice. We deserve a chance to improve. We deserve a chance for our relationships to become hope, hopelessly complicated to be rectified, to be reconciled. But before you have to do that, you've got to care about Doug. Doug's got to matter. And so I'm going to take a trip way out <laughs> uh, into sort of meta ethics. And then, and then I want to, you know, come back to this, the problem of sort of decision anxiety, you know, uh, paralysis over what to do. You know, there's a question about why do I do something? And then the other question about, well, what do I do then? So the why I think is, you know, again, a way the good place is great. Like I cried at the ending of that show. I'm learning that part of who I am in my 30s is someone who cries at, at movies and music. Yeah, that the those of us here who have watched the whole show feel like very strongly in solidarity with you about that. Like we all just <laughs> wept at the end of the show. I wept after um, season one, episode five. That was my <laughs> That point. was the turning point. Did you, Brian, did you cry after, after episode five? Uh, no, but that's just because I have more uh, control over my emotional state late in the just evening. Wait, Brian. You're you're maybe it. you're just more repressed. I, I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it's probably oppressed at this point. But in the midst of our conversation, like I, I'm just remembering some of the like some of the classes that I took on Eastern religions, and I know that that's not in any of our areas of study, but it really does seem to consistently come back to that first noble truth that all life is suffering. And, and it seems like uh, that's where the good place is going. And to yeah, a man, just, just you wait for those last three or four episodes and, and it's all going to come rolling back. Again, I don't study Eastern religion. I would be interested to hear, and I'm about to just drop a whole bunch of jargon. So I bet this gets cut and left on the floor. Just uh, explain it as you drop it. But here, between the four of us, love a director's cut. <laughs> so if we have this noble truth, right, that all of life is suffering, the next question is why? Well, because we're, desire, we're desiring animals, and desire is a lack. And that idea is not, you know, it takes different shapes in different places, but it's not unique to the East. Pe people who read Plato um, are familiar with the presentation of Eros, of love, as a poor god, a god that, that lacks but wishes uh, to possess. Um, that's in the uh, symposium. So what you have to do is overcome that desire. And the way that you do that is about is, is nirvana, which is literally a blowing out. You, you sort of blow yourself out. It's self-annihilation. You disappear. 
So that's one story about human life, human suffering, human desire. And that's the place that, that's where the good place retreats to in the last couple episodes of the show. Again, check so, all of this stuff with someone who actually studies Eastern religion. <laughs> so, so actually, um, I think if you think about the Zen quote that Chidi says at the end, it's really more of a, it is a self-annihilation, but it's more of a self-integration. You know, he talks about being the droplet in the wave. And so, so I think if we're interpreting the end of the show, which I'm totally down to do, you know, you kind of wind up, you know, becoming once again, a part of the universe, but in a different way, in a different way, you're, you're, you're no longer an individual, but you're, you're part of the whole fabric of the universe. You're not a self anymore. Not in the way we think of selves, right? Like self-integration and self-annihilation go hand in hand. Yeah, they're really- I'm agreeing with you, I think. <laughs> yeah, they're not that different. It's just a difference in optimism or pessimism, I think. Well, maybe, or it's that we're a bunch of Western folks who really, really are clinging to this self. But again, we need, a, we need someone who actually studies, <laughs> studies this stuff to help us understand these ideas and their nuance, lest we slide into Orientalism. But yeah, I think it, it might look like this, the self-annihilation is probably going to ring through for Westerners. We really, I really like myself. I even love myself. And so self-annihilation sounds really, really awful. Yeah, and it's really interesting because in other forms of media, other pop culture, especially from uh, Asia, Japan, um, a lot of their stories fully embrace that. So the one show that pops up into my mind, which was really like surreal um, and in its ending sort of gets to that place, uh, was like um, Evangelion series, the Evangelion series, where all of like the human lives become this one thing. And um, like, like the droplet in the wave, um, it's not the self, but it's sort of like um, the merging and the commingling of all of the selves together to sate or um, give all of the desires that everyone needs um, until it's just this one uh, cohesive thing. And I think that's why it's so strange for a lot of folks in America or in Western cultures to understand that because that's not where we want to end up, right? We want to preserve, uh, we must endure forever in whatever way, but in, in other parts of the world, that's the exact opposite. So it's really interesting that the good place goes that route. And I think that also makes me think about, well, maybe it's, maybe I should think about my self-centeredness a little bit more as well. So. Yeah. I think one of the tricky things in the good place in it's taking this turn is that, and this is coming back to what I said at the top of our conversation. So one thing that's strange about this sudden sort of turn to the East in the last couple episodes of the good place is that it arrives in a story that I think is, for the most part, about the salvation of individuals and not extinguishing individuals. And I think one challenge that The Good Place faces is attempting to fit its take on a certain uh, Eastern philosophy and spirituality into a Western metaphysic. So the good place, again, if the need is, is to 
to recognize this first noble truth and to sort of blow oneself out as, as Brian's saying, then the good place itself is a setting for more suffering. It's not the good place in any way that, you know, Christians might imagine heaven. And of course, it's not that anyway. This is a kind of, you know, it's a heaven without a God. So the good place, another thing that's interesting in it is that they don't try to imagine any kind of deity figure. There are all these supernatural beings that sort of run the, like perpetuate the system, but we have no idea who put this system in place or why. And it seems like, you know, the judge, the accountants, uh, the devils, they don't really know either. It's just there. It's, it's kind of a brute given. Michael uh, Yandel, you should have on to talk if you do a follow-up Good Place episode, was focusing on this in his paper. But the difficulty, it seems, or one difficulty of imagining a heaven without a God is that we end up imagining, you know, a heaven uh, where every good is finite, where you can become bored of any given good that's in front of you. And the narrative bears that out for us. Even, even you know, your beloved is going to get boring. With enough time, you're going to, they're a finite good. You're going to know everything about them. You're going to kind of be over it. Maybe you're full. And then you've just, it, it, it's really better that you don't kill, you know, your beloved and move on to the next person for eternity. Because with infinite time, they're going to get boring too. And then you're going to be some kind of weird afterlife serial killer or something. I don't know. So it's just better that you pass out of existence. Well, if that's the case, then the good place isn't the good place. It's a site for more suffering. It takes longer. You suffer longer. But you have so but, much frozen yogurt. So. Yeah, you do eat a lot of that. Um, which again, just the perfect, perfect afterlife thing, right? Like frozen yogurt, it's good. It's not that good. It's fine. So that's tricky. Someone, there's, there's a great panel with some, some people who study like Hinduism and Buddhism uh, and Jainism who, you know, should get together with some people who think about the West and try and figure out what on earth were these writers doing when they tried to cram these things together. But let me come back to uh, Garrett's remark earlier about sort of, you know, wanting to do the good thing, but having no idea what on earth you should do. Uh, and also why I cried at the end of the show. That's what we really want to know. Uh, yes. Why, why was I crying? Why didn't Brian cry? What's wrong with him? You know? Well, he hasn't seen the end of the show yet, but you know, no. really this is cried. a precursor to us all getting together and crying together as. Yeah. By then the pandemic will be over. We'll watch the last couple of episodes with Brian and we'll, we'll cry on his couch with, with his dog. Right. Um, John, Sarah, did you guys cry? Oh yeah. hundred percent. We've been like babies. I, I used the word wept earlier for a reason. Like it was just so beautiful. I All mean, right, I'll I wept at before Christmas. Yeah, I wept at the uh, end of the uh, the movie Shiloh, which was about a beaver. <laughs> so I, I guess the good place would get me. Listen, uh, if there's even a movie trailer with a dog in it, I will start bawling <laughs> in the theater. So Belrod, uh, yeah, tell us, on, on tell back. us how uh, <laughs> you 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 come to. Uh, embrace crying at the end of the good place yeah why did i why did i sit on my couch like a, a dignified modern man slowly letting my tears seep from my my eyeballs and, and down my cheeks next to my dog even though the show as i think even though the show doesn't make moral sense cheaty solution is it's a logical leap why did i cry instead of just being like here's another game of thrones which also had a, a completely illogical ending that like thematically maybe sort of worked, but come on, 
Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I just sign frustration at the end of the show? Because I cared about Chidi. I cared about Eleanor. I cared about Jason. I cared about Tahani. Those characters occupied my imagination for uh, four years. How long was the show on the air? Right? Like I lived with those people and they lived with me. So in the end, I didn't really care if there was a good moral reason for them to survive. That, that finally was, um, was of secondary importance to me. It didn't matter to me if, if I thought that the case TD put before the judge was really persuasive and, and you know, checked all the boxes. And so what the show does where it succeeds is confronting us with the good of these characters. And I mean confronting, the, these characters make a claim on us. We don't pick them. They make a claim on us. They, the, their good impresses itself on us. And then ethics follows in the wake of that. But it gets into all kinds of logical circles when it tries to account for it. So I think it's perfectly consistent to sit on your couch and cry, even after, you know, a kind of non sequitur moral argument has solved the narrative tension of the show. And it's appropriate to do that because the characters matter to us. And what The Good Place succeeds at doing is presenting us with, with sort of the why of ethics. So there's a difference between motivating reasons and justifying reasons. There's a little technical language. What does it mean? So a justifying set of reasons might have to do with the steps of the argument that move along the way. And we can appraise an ethical system based on whether or not these sets kind of cohere logically. But it's one thing to say, oh, okay, well, that argument makes sense. And another thing to say, I believe it, right? To act on it, to be motivated by it. And the justifying reasons can't account for that motivation. One way of accounting for that motivation is to say that I choose this good for myself. This is a sort of story about autonomy, about me giving myself the law. But another uh, way of talking about it is to say that there are other people who make a claim upon us, right? Like my wife is a good who makes a claim upon me. And she's, she is that before she is my wife. When she's Courtney, independent of her you know, relationship that binds her to me, she is a good and a good that impresses herself on me. She makes a demand upon me. It's not me declaring the good for myself, though I have the choice to sort of accept or reject this good. Using the marital metaphor, we'll, we'll see how, how this all sounds in playback. This could be very strange. The point is, I'm in a way, you and just say, Sarah, you make me a better person. <laughs> None of us doubted that, John, not for one minute. Please continue, Brian. <laughs> but that's right. John, you know, you, you might believe some things about ethics, right? You might have some reasons for the things that you do, but those reasons are distinct from the sort of impelling force of Sarah in your life. Sarah does make you a better person, and there is no John the moral agent without Sarah or your mom or dad or someone else who, who matters to you or your dog. <sighs> Let's take this to a dark place, huh? You guys, you guys want to get sad? Uh, as long as it leads to weeping. Uh, yeah. Well, but you, do we have you, to be invested in the good you impress upon us for that to work? Man, well, that's the tricky thing. This is How much get do we have to, to edit out? Are we going to talk about dogs? Yeah, we're going to talk about dogs and, and putting your dog down. Oh. Um, yeah, let's get sad. Let's be, let's be unhappy people. 
So, uh, come with Garrett, of- Garrett knows Kira the dog or knew Kira the dog. Kira the dog was, uh, was my dog through seminary. I rescued her when she was six. Uh, and then she lived with me until she was f- almost 15 years old. So she lived a long life. She had kind of a massive catastrophic um, seizure at the end of her life. And so I took her to the vets. And um, it's just a little thing I learned from my vet. If a dog seizure lasts less than two minutes, recovery outcomes are pretty good. If it goes longer than that, there's a real likelihood of deep sort of neurological damage from the seizure or underlying neur- neurological problems. So here has lasted for, you know, half an hour. So then the, the vet, you know, you, we take our dog into the vet. The vet comes in and says, okay, well, you know, what do you want to do? What seems right to you? And now Courtney and I can start providing all sorts of justifying reasons. We can construct all sorts of arguments about why it might be prudent to put Kira down or why we might lack all of the knowledge, why we might need to give her a chance to keep going, right? And implicit in all of this talking is some sense of the good, like the good of Kira, the demand that Kira makes upon us. We ultimately decided to euthanize Kira, um, but not because any of the arguments finally, not because we reached some point where we looked at each other and said, that's the argument that makes the most sense. And so what that experience did for me was to disjoin sort of the motivating good and the, all of the justifications that follow, right? So my dog, Kira, mattered and made a claim upon me. I already believed Kira was good. And then all of the ethical reasons followed. Then we were scrambling to articulate what followed from the demand that that good made upon us. Now, that's not to say that those reasons are bad. We, that's important. You should engage in discernment. You shouldn't just be like, you know, you should suffer your beliefs. Uh, <laughs> you should have to suffer your own moral reasoning. And you should, you know, especially if you're out there preaching and you're telling people like what they should be doing with their lives, you better suffer for that. Because that's important, I think, right? Suffering is part of ha- passion, right? Is from the Greek to suffer. To feel passionately about something is to suffer with it. That's true in in Greek, it's true in our English derivations from Greek, it's true in German and Danish, it's tr- and if it's in all the languages, then it must be true. It's, I don't know. The point is, there's, I think, good precedent for thinking that, that we, we sort of suffer our goods. If we're going to go to the, you know, if we're going to the Christian theology, right, Jesus absolutely suffers this good that makes a claim upon him. But can you give an account of the good? Can you make that good a foundation? Can you give some sort of argument that stops the regress of all that uh, reasoning and ties it to a certain point? I don't think so. Um, and, and that's where I think moral logics start to get really circular and they invite the kind of Socratic question that's meant uh, to end in, in kind of confusion and uncertainty. Uh, this question, as he put it, do the gods love the good because it's good or is the good good because the gods love it? The question here is, is the good good in itself, or is it actually just you know, one more thing that is valuable because the gods love it, and, and the gods are really what's good? Um, and there's problems with both of those answers, and you end up, if you try to answer them, lost in some kind of logical circle. I think there you're running into sort of the limits of ethics, and you're being confronted with this, what I say in the paper, is a sort of good before the ethical. And there I'm borrowing, or I'm riffing on language from... Uh, British philosopher Simon Critchley, 
Um, yeah. So if you want like a deep dive into all this stuff that's, that's more coherent and intelligent than mine, Simon Critchley's book, Infinitely Demanding, is a good one to read. Or if you're the pastoring type, if that's who turns out to listen to this podcast, look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. That Samaritan doesn't decide to do anything. He's not in control. Compassion is in control, right? Compassion moves the Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan can respond to compassion, but he's, it, for a moment, he's not the subject of the action. He's the object. He's not the one acting. He's the one being acted upon. There's a good presented in this beaten stranger, a presumptive corpse on the side of the road. There's a good to that that the Samaritan can't account for, yet finds himself driven towards as it makes a claim upon him. Yeah. And that's the, that's the very good that ethics needs for its motivational por- force, for its starting point. And it's the very good that I don't think ethics can account for. You can give reasons, but they all fall short. We might say, well, it's because of human reason, but then, you know, babies are, are left out and that's not so great. So providing that explanation is fr- frustrating. You might say it's our upright posture. That's what makes us good. But if you do that, then, you know, folks who walk with a cane or, or, or people in wheelchairs, well, they're not really good anymore, are they? So that reason falls through. And any number of reasons ends up sort of uh, impoverishing this good that it's actually trying to articulate. So there again. That's why I cried and that's <laughs> <laughs> oh, at that's the end of the good place because I killed my dog. Um, <laughs> so the lesson here is be the person your dog wants you to be. That's right, yeah. Uh, be the be person, the person your dog that makes the dog you. already loves. We we could keep going on on yeah tweaking this. I don't want I don't want to I don't want to fall into one of those circles you keep talking about. Yeah, we'll sort it out. We'll we'll get a, a good little pithy phrase so we can put it on a throw pillow and put that in in the uh, logos ish uh, merch store. Oh yeah, no, there's gonna be a T-shirt somewhere in here, or at the very <laughs> least a poster. Very good. So uh, not to get too far uh, and distract you any further, Brian. I, I want to know if there are, to sort of like come to the end of the, the episode, if there are any other pop culture shows or, or other forms of media that you would think offer something like The Good Place, something, uh, a point of, uh, to stir one's thoughts about ethics or what it means to be good, or maybe just something that um, would be a good next show to follow up after uh, you get past the first five episodes of The Good Place? I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so much good stuff out there. Um, the Ethics and Society crew at, at Emory has also really enjoyed Westworld. Um, that's a, a very different uh, tone than The Good Place, takes on some different questions. And what about I, you? What are you watching? I've been watching Avatar, uh, The Last Airbender, and The Legend of Korra, and and those have been fun. And I think uh, those are really deep shows. Actually. Yeah, they're they're really really thoughtful children's shows that uh, you know deserve to survive and be watched by more and more generations of kids, so that kids can take on the same deep questions that those shows are taking on. I haven't made it to the end of The Legend of Korra. It gets into some more political theory. I, I think it. It starts to feel very um, surprisingly conservative in its in its politics in seasons uh, three and four so far. Um, that's a tentative conclusion. I haven't seen where season four ends, but that's okay. I mean, there's there's lots of uh, stuff to that show that's uh, 
that really that's really really great um to, to both shows the legend of Korra and um the last airbender so if it turns out that in the legend of Korra, it's politics or some kind somehow hobbesian in their deep structure then that's you know there's it's other okay. stuff that makes we, that we all have our flaws yeah that's right i watched starship troopers the other day that's a that's a controversial movie that's that's just biting political satire that seems somehow apropos this present moment yeah <laughs> uh, I'm so, gonna, I'll go though with Airbender. That's there's, you know, Avatar and, and Legend of Korra. Those are the ones that I'd say watch those next. So, so similarly lighthearted. As a follow-up question, every week we sort of try to close on some final thoughts about like what's giving you life right now. What's kind of, you know, getting you through the day or giving you inspiration. Uh, would would some of that fall into that category, or is there something else that like kind of comes to the forefront of your mind? I mean, right now, the, I don't know if it's giving me life or if it's slowing down my progress on editing my dissertation. Uh, and I don't know that, that the one is, is the opposite of the other. Maybe it's giving me life by slowing down my dissertation editing. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the thing that's doing that uh, is, is the return of NHL hockey. And I'm going to, my hot take is just going to be that I like this playoff format. I don't think they can do it every year. There are logistical reasons they can't do it this way. It doesn't really make sense for 24 teams to make the playoffs every year. But somehow I like watching the games when there's no audience in the tournament, like in the arena. Like something about that makes the tournament feel like just a bunch of, uh, a bunch of players and staffs and teams that are there playing hockey and I don't have to watch like all of these side shots of people in the audience, like going nuts, which I it's, I'm surprised that I don't miss those sorts of things. Cause I enjoy being in the audience, like shaking my fist at the air. And yet somehow there's something strangely intimate about this NHL postseason, um, And that's, that's giving me life somehow this idea that it's just me watching my team, uh, hopefully beat the Boston Bruins uh, for their mediocrity and lack of depth beneath their obviously incredible first line, like best first line in the NHL. Yeah, I, I really, I've, I'm right there with you. NHL hockey has been giving me life, even though our team is pretty much out of the, <laughs> so, you know, out of the tournament at this point. Completely out of the tournament, yeah. But I'm also really excited because we've talked about, and, and you would be welcome to come to this too, Brian, but um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about kind of gathering together on Zoom at some point later in the tournament and really just, appreciating a hockey game together, like watching the hockey game. And uh, maybe this would ruin the experience of watching it alone and feeling like you're the only one <laughs> cheering on, uh, but being together and, and appreciating that, you know, we've missed sports so much over the summer. And so for me, like the return of the NHL and the UFC uh, was kind of a godsend because it was a chance to have that outlet and to, you know, turn around and just appreciate, you know, some of that stuff that had been gone for a little while. Sarah, what about you? Uh, yeah, uh, so I used to be a huge Atlanta Braves fan on that sports note, uh, and then I married somebody who doesn't like baseball. So I it is terrible, yeah. <laughs> baseball so is great. I, <laughs> I stopped watching, but uh, something about this time of working from home, I actually have gotten to see a couple of Atlanta Braves games, as well as some hockey games with John. So, yeah. Uh, who knew that sports was so important to my library nerd self? <laughs> yeah, I had, I never, never before this pandemic, if someone said like, what are you going to miss the most? Like never would sports have come to my mind. And yet 
here we all are. <laughs> just dying for real excited about irrepeatable con content. Yeah. So Brian, the mustached betcher, uh, what is keeping you alive uh, in this time? <laughs> Other than um, this gives you life, Garrett. <laughs> uh, so am I? Am I going to be running the uh, the MC of the podcast now? <laughs> uh, not again. No. <laughs> okay. Cool. So I'm I'm just going to say what gives me life. Uh, hey Brian, can I stop you to just? note for the listeners how great your mustache is like it's thick like there's not that much stuff caught in it i mean listeners if you could see it like it's it's wiry like a brillo pad and yet and yet quaffed and sophisticated uh you know like just the nicest hipster handlebar you've ever seen it's so it's it it truly to behold it is is um you know, nice we should be so lucky to do that even once in this life. It feels it intentional like yet wild. Yeah, I mean, oh. I feel like you should be like behind a, a bar right now, um, slinging drinks uh, that are off like pastel colors, um, and talk about like the freshness of the mint that you're 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 grinding in these in these things. I mean, it just reminds me of that atmosphere so and you don't well, you don't wear a mask a mint, a, a mint julep might give me life right now um <laughs> and just for uh, everyone else's uh, sake i'm completely incapable of growing any kind of mustache that looks anything uh what, what brian is saying is that the mustache he's growing actually transcends the conceptual category of the mustache <laughs> to see it is to know it and to know nothing at all it's it is truly uh, profound as it is absent uh, from any form of reality uh, so but yes I'm gonna say uh, evening zoom gatherings with friends have been life-giving recently uh, I guess it comes to me now uh, I would have to say these uh, recording the podcast has been a great uh, interruption of uh, normal church work. I feel so much more connected with a whole bunch of people and it's just a bunch of friends just laughing, especially at the, the ridiculousness of it. And um, this mug that everyone has commented on uh, as they come into my office, it says, uh, Jesus saves everyone else roll for damage, um, which is a great uh, D&D quote. Um, and it has a picture of Jesus with his arms open and a, uh, a D20 um, in the midst of his hands. So everyone is very intrigued or knows exactly what this means. So what a strange inversion of the atonement. Jesus saves and yet we all still suffer. It's as if it speaks to us today. On the next episode, we'll go down that rabbit hole. But guys, thanks so much for coming out. You know, everybody who's listening, thank you so much for listening. This is Logos-ish. We've had a great week this week, and we're looking forward to many more. Goodbye. I love you. Is that, it's important to me that, that the listeners hear that, that I love every one of them personally for who they are as distinct individuals. With biographies you can and characters. shut this off anytime, John. Uh, should we? Should we have, like said we're i mean if, if brian has something he wants to you know oh yeah what's what uh, we need a plug find you brian elrod <sighs> where can you find you want to be brian found? elrod in kissimmee florida um uh it was your Instagram handle. I 90, i'm 192 what am i plugging right now i don't know um i'm gonna be on this podcast i'm gonna i'm gonna plug my friend's stuff because they um 
I, I owe them for giving me uh, an opportunity to, to follow these thoughts through in an academic setting and then to just, just verbally vomit them on you all here uh, <laughs> with, with just the slightest shred of, of maybe something resembling coherence. So check out Black Forwards. Um, Nicole Simmons, uh, one of my fellow pan panelists, is a panelist with them, and they're taking on all kinds of, uh, all kinds of important um, social justice issues and, and putting them in a, in a Black perspective. Um, and so they're doing really important, really interesting stuff. And you can find um, recordings of their old uh, conversations on Facebook, and you can see um, uh, the uh, new stuff on Facebook Live. Um, and you can find them, I think, on, on, on the Instagrams. Um, and then uh, Michael Yandel's done some really cool work on a concept called moral injury that's sort of connected with The Good Place uh, and living in a world and, and finding oneself in situations where it seems like uh, our deep conceptions of the good rupture and break. So, so look for some of his work. Uh, he's got a book chapter and a book coming out that I know neither the title of the chapter or, or the book. There's a plug for Michael's book that exists. You can find it with them Googles. So, so check out Michael Yandel and Nicole Simmons works. And um, I've got a book chapter coming out that about the perversion of, of Christian ethicists, I guess, um, uh, titled Professional Evasion. And it's gonna be in a book uh, titled uh, Taking Kierkegaard Personally, and that'll be out at some point in 2020. So there's a bunch of plugs. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at logosishpod or check out our Facebook page. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us get the word out about all the wonderful stuff that we are working on, and we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Have a wonderful week.